0: Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, a complimentary resource for those on the road to recovery. I'm Mickey Trescott, a nutritional therapy practitioner living well with autoimmune disease in Oregon. I've got both Hashimoto's
1: and celiac disease. And I'm Angie Alt, a certified health coach and nutritional therapy consultant, also living well with autoimmune disease in Maryland. I have endometriosis, lichen sclerosis, and celiac disease. After recovering our health by combining the best of conventional medicine with effective and natural dietary and lifestyle interventions, Mickey and I started blogging at autoimmune-paleo.com, where our collective mission is seeking wellness and building community. This podcast
0: is sponsored by the Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, our co-authored guide to living well with chronic illness. We saw the need for a comprehensive resource that goes beyond nutrition to connect savvy patients just like you to the resources they need to achieve vibrant health. Through the use of self-assessments, checklists, handy guides, and templates, you get to experience the joy of discovery, finding out which areas to prioritize on your healing journey. Pick up a copy wherever books are
1: sold. Quick disclaimer the content in this podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On to the podcast.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, Episode 2. Today, we're going to be talking about informing yourself and the role that that plays in recovering from autoimmune disease and chronic illness. We really believe that this is the first step to anyone's journey. Whether that is figuring out what's wrong with you, or getting the treatment you need, or making dietary and lifestyle modifications to help yourself, you really can't go anywhere unless you know what you're doing. Um, so I'm Mickey Trescott. I'm here with my partner Angie Alt. Hey there, Angie. Hey guys. So we're gonna talk a little bit today about this topic. How you doing, Angie? I'm good. I'm a little nervous to talk about this topic. (laughs) Yeah. Today, we have a plan to share our personal stories with you guys about diagnosis and how we coped with that. So we're going to get deep. (laughs) So Angie, do you have any beginning thoughts on informing yourself?
1: Yeah. You know, when we were kind of talking, brainstorming about what we were going to cover in this episode, the thing that I felt like I really wanted to share with the listeners is that diagnosis can be something that seems a little bit scary like having to get that information about yourself seems like maybe I don't want to know right actually I think once you understand you're a lot less afraid I think for both of us when we found out what was wrong in a lot of ways it took away a lot of fear because we finally had a name for the problem and we could start to move forward
0: yeah. You know, this is the podcast that goes along with the first chapter of our book, which is also titled Inform. We have this awesome quote from Marie Curie that starts off a chapter that says, nothing in life is to be feared, only to be understood. And we thought that was a really elegant way of describing
1: um, kind of that process. I think one of the things that we really focused on in the book, and actually a really big motivator to write the book, period, was this idea that the burden of really understanding about your disease really knowing about your disease belongs to you again that's another kind of hard one to swallow along with being diagnosed right but informing yourself is really your responsibility i think mickey and i would agree at this point we are experts on our own diseases and most of the time we probably know a little bit more about our diseases than some of our doctors do (laughs) true true that (laughs) but that's where you want to be. That information is just so empowering. We wrote the whole first chapter of our book around this idea that you need to take action and go out there and educate yourself and learn everything you can about your condition once you know what it is and about autoimmune disease in general, because having that information is having power. Mm So Angie, tell me when you realized
0: that you needed to become your own best advocate and you needed to inform yourself about your conditions and kind of hold the reins in that way.
1: I think I realized pretty early on when I got my very first diagnosis, I was only 21 years old and I didn't understand responsibility uh, in general, (laughs) Um, but it wasn't very long after that, that I realized that if I wanted to take care of my own health, I was going to be an informed patient. As I got subsequent diagnoses, I really jumped in to learning about them right away and really gaining as much detail as I could because I knew that was going to help me advocate for myself with my doctors and, and in getting the right medical care. What about you, Mick? When did you realize? I think it was when I'd actually had my
0: diagnosis, both of them, a celiac and Hashimoto's. And I was in the middle of my health crisis, 25 years old. And I was continuing to go to doctors because I had more symptoms and the doctors were telling me, you know, there's nothing we can do. I didn't want to believe that there was nothing I could do. (laughs) And that's when I took on that responsibility. It was a big turning point. I could at least get an understanding of it so that I could actually ask them intelligent questions and advocate.
1: Right. You just hit on something really important, being well-informed about your disease. Allows you to ask the right questions. I think in the very beginning, I didn't know what the questions were that I should have been asking, and I missed some important information because of that. I
0: mean, when you only get 15 minutes with a doctor, they're working with you on a level that they think you're at. So if you don't have any understanding of anything, they're going to give you the basics. If you have a really high level of understanding, you can get a lot more out of those 15 minutes. So Let's transition into actually talking about our experience with diagnosis. I know a lot of people are really interested in that. These are just our stories. I know we've shared them in a few different places around on podcasts and on our blog, but we wanted to dig in today into the actual act of getting diagnosed, how that felt, what that meant for our healing journeys. Sometimes it's inspiring and helpful to see where
1: someone else has been. Mickey, let's start with you. Why don't you tell our audience about being diagnosed with Hashimoto's and celiac disease? Yeah, so my
0: diagnosis, it was helpful, but it wasn't very powerful. I had started feeling autoimmune symptoms when I was 25, and it took about a year for me to arrive at the place where I got a diagnosis. And about six months before I actually got the diagnosis, I started doing my own research because I'd seen countless doctors for what I thought was a thyroid condition based on my symptoms. And they all told me, oh, your thyroid's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. So I finally came across Hashimoto's disease. This is a point where I'd kind of got for myself. You know, I need to learn about what could be wrong with me so that I could ask better questions and demand better testing. And so I did find a doctor who tested me for thyroid antibodies um, when I told him about my symptoms. And he also had idea to test for celiac disease, which was not on my radar. And both of them came back positive. So I got my diagnosis of celiac and Hashimoto's
1: on the same day. What did it feel like to get both an expected and an unexpected diagnosis?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question because with the Hashimoto's, you know, I'd would i been through the five doctors who told me my thyroid was normal and I had connected with people online and read a bunch of stuff that was like, you know, cold hands and feet, hair falling out, insomnia, fatigue, you know, all of these symptoms that are very classic thyroid that I was experiencing. I would say except for weight gain, I wasn't experiencing that and I think that's why a lot of doctors dismissed me. I had actually gone gluten-free after I got my blood tested for both antibodies. And in the couple of weeks, I felt really good. So when I got my diagnosis, my doctor said, oh, you know, you have Hashimoto's, but there's no treatment for you because your lab tests are normal and you're already gluten-free, so you don't have to do anything. And that was really frustrating
1: to me. So diagnosis without treatment despite symptoms is pretty common for us autoimmune folks, isn't it?
0: Yeah. It's like you know something's wrong and you have to fight to find out exactly what it is. And then when you find out what it is, you think, great, now that I know. Now they'll help me. Now they'll help me. And they still gave me the same answer. You know, what I've learned since then is that with thyroid disease, A lot of people get that story from their doctors, from especially conventional medical doctors, because there is no specific treatment for autoimmune thyroid disease that is different than hypothyroidism. They look at the same numbers, so it it doesn't matter if you have autoimmune disease. So that's why all those doctors told me, oh, it's fine, nothing's wrong, because they actually, even if they figured out I had Hashimoto's, they wouldn't do anything. And uh, that was really distressing to me.
1: Diagnosis is so hard. It's so hard, right? The path, the time, the emotions and energy. Yeah. And then thinking of
0: myself as someone with a disease Mm -hmm. that was new for me. You know, I was 26, I had healthy early adulthood, I was living in Seattle, I biked everywhere, I didn't have a car. I ran for fun. I did yoga. I went to the gym all the time. I was kind of like an obsessive athletic person into rock climbing and I loved life and I had tons of energy and I really believed that I was invincible. <laughs> when I got those diagnoses, I, I realized, uh-oh, this is the first seed of, well, maybe there's something wrong with me that got planted and you can't take that away. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of wanted to go back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to, uh, to the way I was before, which, you know, no, no worries.
1: <laughs> right. Right.
0: What about you, Angie? Um, talk to me about your diagnosis. Cause I know that the, especially the
1: timeline was really different from mine. Yeah, so this is like a really good opportunity for our listeners to hear about two totally different timelines in terms of getting diagnosis. Sometimes for some folks with autoimmune disease, diagnosis is relatively quick from the onset of symptoms, and sometimes it's really, really long. Unfortunately, I think the really long time frame is more normal. Mine might even be on the uh, far end of that more normal spectrum. So my very first diagnosis was lichen sclerosis, which is a skin condition. An autoimmune skin condition. And I got that one surprisingly kind of fast um, after my daughter was born in my 20s. I started noticing some changes to my skin and I was having some pain and everything. And in, at that time, there really wasn't a culture of Dr. Google. So I didn't figure it out um, by going on Google and, and looking for all this information. I actually looked it up in a medical encyclopedia. And I found what I thought it was and I went and saw my doctor and surprisingly, he was like, yes, that is what it is. And you know, you have lichen sclerosis and here's some corticosteroid cream and I'll see you later. <laughs> and he didn't really talk to me about it and he didn't really explain what it was or kind of like what the prognosis meant or really importantly, he didn't explain that um, it was an autoimmune disease. And so I just kind of like, blundered along with it. But all that time, actually, since I had started menstruating as a teenager, I had had some really severe pain surrounding my cycle. Um, And that continued after my daughter was born, kind of went right back into the same cycle. And that just went on for a really long time um, and kind of got worse and worse. And then, you know, my husband and I tried to have another baby and we started really struggling with infertility. About a year into that process, I went through a battery of uh, fertility testing, but the doctors did not suspect endometriosis, which I learned later they really should have because I have a strong family history of endometriosis and about 50% of women who are struggling with infertility have endometriosis. So they actually should have looked pretty early on, but they didn't. We continued to struggle And then we moved overseas and I had a bout of chronic appendicitis and we were living in an undeveloped country during a political crisis in that country (laughs) uh, with a military government, unfortunately, committing some crimes on the population. We had to be evacuated for my medical crisis (laughs) So it was extremely stressful, uh, as you can imagine, and I came back to the United States. Then I had a second bout of chronic um, appendicitis, and at that point, my doctor decided that I should have laparoscopic surgery, and that's when I was diagnosed with endometriosis. So that was like about 15 years after the start of symptoms for endometriosis, and it was about 10 years after my first autoimmune diagnosis with lichen sclerosis. And then two years later, I finally got diagnosed with celiac disease after two more medical evacuations. And, and the reason I had to go through medical evacuations was, again, we were living overseas in an undeveloped country and my complications of celiac disease were just kind of mounting and the medical system in the country just didn't have the facilities to take care of those problems. So
0: Angie, will you tell me a little bit about misdiagnosis and how that played a role in your story because it sounds like you're like in sclerosis you know you knew what it was you went to your doctor he confirmed but it seems like with endometriosis and the celiac there was some other things that maybe the doctors missed
1: Right. So part of the reason that the length of time for getting a name for my diseases and getting treatment was so long is because there was some misdiagnosis along the way. So with the endometriosis, I basically just got told that women have painful periods sometimes and that it was normal. A lot of doctors basically told me that I should take some Advil and not call them in the morning. <laughs> um, it just kind of got dismissed. When my husband and I started seeking treatment for infertility um, and going through testing, they actually came back to us after battery of testing and told us that everything looked pretty normal, but they suspected that I was infertile due to my age. I was 28 (laughs) when they told me that. So as you can imagine, I was rather upset. And then to find out a few years later that it was really endometriosis was really, it was pretty painful. Getting that diagnosis, there was kind of some grief about years lost where we could have probably had a child if it had been treated sooner. And the celiac disease, I actually started having symptoms of the celiac disease around the same time as like, in sclerosis after my daughter was born. And I went and saw my general practitioner at the time and I was told classically many celiacs get this diagnosis. I was told that I had IBS and just not to worry about it, just take whatever over-the-counter medications I needed to to k- kind of manage later on when it got very very severe in the months right before I got diagnosed so I had been sick with celiac disease for probably about 11 years at that point right before I got diagnosed I was so malnourished I started having a lot of mental health and emotional problems I was referred to a psychiatrist and she diagnosed me with post traumatic stress disorder PTSD so my misdiagnoses ran the gamut. <laughs> That's insane.
0: So, I mean, from beginning to end, it sounds like you've spent over a decade yeah. kind of narrowing in on what exactly you were dealing with and the lack of labeling them as autoimmune diseases. How do you feel that affected your ability to really learn and prevent you know, future conditions, because we know that people that have one autoimmune disease are very likely to develop another and then another. And your story of having three is pretty common. So how, how did that make you feel when you found out about that?
1: Yeah, so having three or more diagnosed autoimmune conditions is actually called uh, multiple autoimmune syndrome, mass, MAS, M-A-S, It is really common. And unfortunately, delaying diagnosis and delaying treatment is sometimes kind of sets up the dominoes to fall that way, right? And maybe if I had been given the correct label from the very beginning with my very first diagnosis and told this is an autoimmune disease, it puts you at risk for others, you know, be aware that information could have been useful for me with the next symptoms and the next doctors that I saw. And maybe I would have gotten help a little faster. Yeah. Intense. I'm glad I got through that without crying, Mick. (laughs) Yay. You did it. We're not through the coping yet, though. (laughs) So speaking of coping, Mickey, do you want to talk to our listeners about some of your primary emotions that you felt around coping with your diagnosis when you received it?
0: Yeah. So I really struggled to cope when I was diagnosed For some reason, even though I had come across Hashimoto's online and I was pretty convinced that I had it, I just filed that away and thought, okay, I'm okay, you know. And then when I found out that autoimmune disease is incurable and that once your body starts attacking itself, it never stops and that there's really no treatment options, so my doctor said for me, it really threw me into despair and a lot of grief. The summer that I was diagnosed, I went on a trip. We spent about a month driving around on the West Coast, and that's really when I started to feel so sick that it was impacting my daily activities. So up till this point, I just kind of pushed through it. But I started to think, okay, maybe I'm not normal. Maybe I don't have as much energy as I used to. Maybe I need to slow down. Then I went home. I got a diagnosis. And in a very short period of time, I was in the hospital a few times, for various things, mostly I, I had an infection I couldn't kick. I had electrolyte imbalance. I was so fatigued that I couldn't go back to work, and I got fired. And a lot of my friends who were really I connected with them on this uber athletic level. When I got sick, you know, they sympathized and and they were they were kind and they sent me well wishes, but they didn't really understand how to help me because not only did I not really understand what was going on, but our friends and our family, I mean, they don't really understand what autoimmune disease is and and what it looks like and, and how to support someone with it. So I really mourned the loss of my blissful ignorance and my youth before I was diagnosed. And looking back, Before my diagnosis, I can trace now symptoms from when I was a teenager. I got my period very late at 16. And I remember my mom asking my doctor when I was 15, my pediatrician, and he said, You know, if she hasn't got her first period before she's 16, then there's a big problem and we'll do some testing. And I actually got my period the week after I turned 16. And so my mom said, Okay, no problem that is really when my problem started. And that was about 10 years before I got my diagnosis. And it was really sad. You know, I cried most days Mm -hmm. on the couch for probably two months.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And and I actually thought I was dying. I remember talking to my husband and, and I was like, you know, I feel like if I had a diagnosis of cancer, I could die, you know, that isn't always the outcome, but I think everyone who has that diagnosis recognizes that as a reality. And I knew that with a diagnosis that I had, I, I wasn't most likely dying, but a part of my life was. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really the primary emotion that I felt mm-hmm. when I was diagnosed, because I really did feel like I, I could never go back. Yeah. I could never undo that. Yeah. Your former self was permanently changed. Also, the way that I interacted with people in my life, they could never understand had they not gone through something similar.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it could be losing someone. It could be an illness. You know, when you go through something like that, it changes you. I started really being jealous. I don't know. I I just, I couldn't understand my friends who continued to live however they wanted with no consequence, and they didn't think about their health, and they thought that I was crazy, and I thought that they were crazy for not really taking their health seriously. But once you don't have it, it becomes the most important thing in your world.
1: It's so cliche, right, to say that uh, nothing else matters when you don't have your health, but people who, like us, who've gone through losing their health uh, really know that for sure, right? Yeah. Nothing else matters without it. It's really the foundation.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. Let's talk about your feelings, Angie, a little bit about how you coped with your diagnosis, because I know that you were
1: probably pretty relieved when you got your diagnosis after a decade of having issues. Right. You know, when we were talking about doing this podcast today and kind of mapping out some things, we really narrowed in on that idea that like for you, your primary emotion was grief. My primary emotion was relief for sure. I really thought especially nearing the the last like probably year before I got my celiac diagnosis I really started to think that I was maybe losing my mind or going crazy um, after I got the PTSD misdiagnosis one of my doctors started talking about the possibility that I would admit myself for a short stay in a psychiatric facility because the doctors couldn't give me anything concrete that was physically wrong I thought that that I must be losing my mind. (laughs) I thought, well, maybe I'm making this up and maybe that means that I need to go stay somewhere where they can help me deal with that problem. (laughs) I was really a mess. There was some mourning in in getting the diagnoses, of course. I'm a celiac who used to love beer. (laughs) So, you know, I had some mourning about the life that I had before, like you said, mourning of the life that I had before that I I wasn't going to have anymore. Mainly, I just felt a... a huge wave of relief. And I felt like, you know, I've described it a lot blogging as though I had an enemy, but I didn't have a name for the enemy. I couldn't see the enemy. It was impossible to fight it because I didn't know what it was or where it was. And it was kind of like getting a name for that enemy totally turned the tide for me. That's
0: such a an interesting perspective when you, you know you're fighting something, but you don't know what it is, and then you find it out, and then you're like, okay, I have a reason. Right. You know, we get asked this all the time, for anyone that doesn't have a diagnosis, it is a really important part of the process. It's worth that fight. For me, even though, you know, my diagnosis didn't really make me feel better, I actually felt worse. I got into my worst health and my health crisis a few months after my diagnosis, and, you know, I wouldn't say that the diagnosis was my turning point, it was quite after my diagnosis, But it was a valuable starting place for me to learn about what was affecting me and,
1: you know, how to move forward with that. Yeah. Right. It's like the basis for further empowerment. That's not to say for any of our listeners who are out there without a diagnosis and who have been looking for one for a long time and really trying to work with their doctors to find that answer that, that you can't move forward doing things for your own health. We just know that having that crucial piece of information can really change the methods that you use to, to restore your health.
0: And it also, I mean, it really gives you a way to keep up with your progress, right? You know, if you have a disease and you have a good doctor that you're working with and they're regularly doing tests and everything, it's good to just keep checking up on it. That's a good transition into our next topic, which is the kind of testing and treatments that we did to get our diagnosis and also the things that we did early on. So Angie, what, testing did you
1: have for celiac
0: and how did they determine that that's what you had?
1: So I had been seeing tons and tons of different doctors. They were doing different kinds of tests, but nothing was coming back. And, you know, they were just kind of telling me that I was extremely stressed and very worried by that point. Um, I was losing a lot of weight by that point. They basically were telling me that my stress was causing weight loss and that I should stop being stressed out and I should like go eat all the pizza, cookies and milkshakes I I could stand. And like a lot of doctors told me to eat a lot of pasta, (laughs) Um, which was terrible advice in hindsight. But finally, one of my doctors referred me to a gastroenterologist and I went and saw her. And in my first meeting with her, she told my husband and I that she thought I might have a stomach ulcer, but she wanted to run some other tests. That's what she said. She didn't tell me that the tests were for celiac disease. She just said she wanted to run some other tests. And so she ran a blood test for gluten antibodies. And my test results came back positive. And in the United States, currently, the gold standard then is to go on to have an endoscopy where they put the camera down your throat and they look at your small intestine and they take biopsies of your small intestine. And if the villi in those biopsies is damaged, they confirm the diagnosis of celiac disease. So after she called me with the positive blood results, we scheduled the endoscopy and I went in and had the procedure. And when I came to from the procedure, she walked into the recovery room and in like 10 seconds, she ended more than 10 years of confusion. (laughs) And she just said, you have celiac disease.
0: That was it. (laughs) That's really, really powerful moment. Really crazy how doctors like side idea like oh well i guess it could be this could just like end so much misery for you
1: right (laughs) yeah i was like um that thing that you just said in less than 10 seconds i feel like it should include like trumpets maybe a violin (laughs) That brings us to the next thing we want to talk about today, which is gathering and storing information. So especially in the case of um, Hashi's folks, but it applies to a lot of other um, autoimmune diseases as well. There's a lot of lab work and there's a lot of medical information that's being generated about your case history. How do you handle gathering and storing information now? And what did you learn about that early on? So
0: I'm kind of a a very organized person, so I tend to be, like, have all my information at the ready. I love to research, I love to print things off, I love to file things. So in the beginning, I definitely printed out all of my information and stored it in a filing cabinet. I didn't I didn't like having it on the computer because I don't know. I like having the physical files to actually move around and and have in a dated folder and I know you can do that on computer but for some reason my brain doesn't like that. So I printed everything out and since I was switching doctors really often, you know, doctors will release information to each other. Uh, legally, they have to. But what I found was that a lot of times the records would be incomplete. So what I started doing was requesting all my lab work directly and never leaving the office where there was a reading of a lab work without a copy of that lab work. And when I did that, then I just would come home, I'd put in my file, I would always have a complete file, and then if I ever saw a new doctor, I could just hand them my complete file, they could scan everything for their records, and I didn't have to wait for all the forms to be signed, and the faxes, and then things get lost, and then you go to an appointment, and your doctor doesn't have your old lab work, and it's really hard for them to do (laughs) what they're doing, and I don't know. So I learned really early on to kind of keep a really good record. I'm a little obsessive with it. And it's interesting now, you know, when I started this, there weren't a lot of online record systems but now there are. And so a lot of the doctors that I've seen in the past few years will have online records that I'll just go online and print them out and still put them in my paper file Um, because actually recently switched doctors and my old doctor, they changed their practice and they deleted all of my records before I had a chance to download them. And I had seen her two weeks ago, so it wasn't like years, (laughs) you know, years ago. Um, So I'm actually right now going through the process of actually getting the hard copies from the office and it's kind of been a whole thing so even when you know better you know storing and organizing and having all that records and everything and the digital stuff just know that that can go away you know in a blink of an eye but the paper stuff you know you're always going to have it unless like your house burns down which hopefully that never happens what about you angie what was your experience with
1: organizing stuff So I had to learn the hard way from the beginning that I really needed to be the master of my information, um, that a big part of being informed was gathering and storing the medical information about myself. I really didn't take charge of that as strongly as I needed to in the beginning. I'm a pretty organized and put together person, but I didn't understand in the beginning that it was kind of going to build and I was going to need all that information for the future. So it took a while to put together a system. But now I have both. Both a paper and a computer system. So I have most of my records in both places and I organize everything in folders by year and then by month. And I put labs and different reports and things in order like that. Just recently, it's become really valuable for me because I'm going through a process of meeting a new doctor for my endometriosis and they needed a really complete file. And so it was great that I had everything put together. I had pictures from old surgeries and you know, I had everything I needed so that I could submit it and, you know, work with my new doctor. So,
0: yeah, I would also encourage people to save their old journals if they have any old journals. I started this process about five years ago and I've found some of my old journals in my, in my records and it's really interesting to go back and remind myself kind of how I was feeling and the symptoms that I felt at my sickest and have that information, you know, when I'm having a bad day, it's like remembering where I've been. It's, it's really, really awesome uh, to be able to look back and see what's happened. So save all that stuff. Don't throw it away. So um, let's talk about homework. So for people that have our book, the Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, one of the unique things about it is that there are all of these resources that are actually actionable for people that are going through this process. So Angie, tell our listeners about what we'd like them to do this week.
1: Yeah. So if they already have our book, they can take a look at the autoimmune status self-test that we have there. It's just a great way to find out kind of where you're at on the autoimmune spectrum. It's a step that will help inform you about where to go next in terms of diagnosis, treatment, and lifestyle changes. Awesome. And to wrap things up, uh, we just want you guys to know that through
0: sharing our stories, you know, you're not alone. Even though Angie and I have regained our health and, you know, we're out here helping everyone figure these things out, you know, you're not alone. Like we've been there. We've been in your shoes. We've been sick and depressed and wondering what to do and how to cope with the changes and the diagnosis that we got and all of those things. Yeah. Uh,
1: we didn't wake up informed, Yeah, uh, you know, magically one day. So for those of you that are listening and going like, oh, it's such a huge task to inform myself about my illness and the next steps. We, we totally get it, but it is totally possible.
0: And it doesn't happen in a day. For me, even just getting the diagnosis took a year and then getting the treatment that I needed took another year. That was two years of my life where I was ex- experiencing these symptoms every single day and I didn't have the answers. It's really easy to listen to 30-minute interview with someone where they talk about, oh yeah, I did that, but there was a lot of slogging and a lot of confusion and all of that for both of us, wouldn't you say, Angie? Definitely. I mean, Angie's got like ten years, so <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous.
1: I totally agree.
0: So, finding your true path to wellness starts with being informed. Um, we will talk to you guys
1: next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. We're honored to have you as a listener, and we hope that you've gained some useful information. You can learn more about the
0: topic we explored today. It's covered in detail in our book, The Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, along with handy self-assessments, checklists, and other useful resources to put your plan into action. Pick up a copy today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes, as this helps others find us. You can also connect with us through our blog, autoimmune-paleo.com, and with the community by using the hashtag wellness.